just affirmed our hope. My soul is in despair, but I hope in God. I will still praise Him. Our Hebrews text urges us to give all diligence to have the same assurance of hope that the Old Testament saints had, that the sons of Korah had when they wrote that song. So listen now to Hebrews chapter 6. Open your Bibles if you have the if you have a Bible with you. Hebrews 6, and we will start at verse 13. <clears throat> For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, give us that hope. Give us this soul anchor that is in the heavenly places, seated at your right hand with your Son. Give us the hope that does not put us to shame because your love has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your promise, for your oath, for your track record of keeping your oaths. Thank you that you cannot lie that you desire to give us hope and thus multiply your testimonies to your faithfulness. Help us when our soul is in despair to remember you, to take fast hold of your promises and to know that we will again come into your presence and praise you because you are the salvation of our face and our God. We pray these things in the name of your Son, asking that he would free us from distraction and help us to listen to your word this morning. Amen. We are supposed to try to have hope. The full assurance of hope is not something that you will gain by watching TV and folding laundry. It's not where hope comes from. Hope, as I said last week, comes from seeing God fulfill His promises. The car that has started 400 times, you have good confidence that it will start the 401st time. The God who has come through, who has kept His promises 400 times, is the God in whom you hope for the 401st time. Because of God's character, God's oath, God's track record, our passage tells us, you can and should have full assurance of hope in His promises. 
because God keeps his promises, you can and should have a full assurance of hope in them. The full assurance of hope is a steady expectation of gaining what God has promised, which is, sum it up, essentially, eternal life with him and his son and his spirit. To have the full assurance of hope is to have no doubt or very little doubt. It is to be confident, to be joyously certain that your eternal future is secure. Gratitude and hope go together. We sit down at the Thanksgiving this table this week and we offer our thanks to God. Right? Woe be to you if you do not. Don't have Thanksgiving dinner and fail to talk about your gratitude and to express your gratitude verbally to one another and to the Lord. You're missing the point of the holiday if you don't show gratitude on that day. But also, it's a holiday of hope. We have hope that we can eat a bunch today because we have plenty to last us for the year. Our trust is that God will provide for us in the lean days of February and March unless we celebrate in November his faithfulness. Why should we be hopeful? What gives us the full assurance of hope? The answer, of course, is the character of God. And the Hebrew writer briefly rehearses it once again to say that God made a promise. We should have the same diligence to show hope that Abraham had because the God who made the promise to Abraham is the same God who makes the promise to us. When God made a promise to Abraham, well, God promises. And, of course, he kept that promise to Abraham, which means he will keep his promise to you. You can be fully hopeful in his promise. When he made that promise, he took an oath. He swore. No one can force God to be under oath. But God voluntarily said, By myself, I have sworn. Because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Told you before about the scene where Huck Finn is put under oath and they slip the book under his hand. And he's seen it weren't nothing but a dictionary, so he lied. He didn't care. The dictionary was not great enough to force him to tell the truth. God doesn't just swear on the dictionary or swear on the Bible, He swears by Himself, by His own character. There is nothing greater by which to swear. No one more permanent, more enduring, more able to hold him to account. Why did God swear? Well, the writer tells us. It was because he wanted to show more abundantly the immutability of his counsel. You can trust the lightest word that God says. God never lies. But... He didn't utter this as a light word. By the way, Abraham, there might or might not be some descendants coming your way. And he didn't phrase it in some equivocal terms, but he took the solemnity of swearing an oath to say, Abraham, I want you to live 
in hope. I have sworn to give you a seed. And God's track record, of course, is that he did exactly what he said. This, is, this quote is from Genesis 22, after Abraham attempts to sacrifice Isaac, and the angel of the Lord stops him. God says, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now that doesn't mean that Abraham lived to see his numerous seed, but rather that he obtained the down payment. He saw Isaac. He knew that God would keep his promises. God had said, I will give you a seed. Now this promise in Genesis 22 is at least the fourth time that God had reiterated that promise to Abraham. And yet, of course, even when Abraham died, as chapter 11 tells us, he had not seen the fulfillment of the promise. He hadn't seen his numerous seed. He had to wait for the better part of a lifetime to even see one legitimate son. And hope is okay with that. Hope is willing to wait to receive the promise. Abraham was a man of faith and a man of hope. You and I are called to be hopeful people as well. We believe that Jesus will reign and that the nations will be at peace under his rule. We hope for that. And therefore, we don't read the headlines and say, there's so many wars, I guess Jesus is probably not going to reign. That totally misunderstands things, just as it was a misunderstanding on Abraham's part to laugh, or to let Sarah laugh, and to say, I'm barren, God, you don't know what you're talking about with this promise. Hope is against hope, as Paul puts it. That is, hope doesn't base itself on current circumstances, doesn't project current trends and say, all right, the world is clearly becoming more and more the place where Jesus reigns. Therefore, I will believe that Jesus will reign. That's not what hope is about at all. It has nothing to do with projecting current trends into the future and saying, I believe in my projections. What did I see this week? If you just do mathematical projections, then in the year 2035, California will have 120% of the population of the United States living in it. Or something like that, where you can draw trends into the future, right? California was growing so much faster than the rest of the nation in the 90s that if you just extended the trend lines, then there would be more people living in California than in the entire country. Which is, right, not possible. But God says, I will send you a seed, Abraham. He says to us, you will live in heaven with me and my son. And no matter what evidence the world presents to the contrary, we hope. Because our hope is not founded on evidence that we see in the world. There's, there's hints of it. Right? You look at the majesty of the big horns and you say, the God who can make these is the God who keeps his promises. He's a beautiful God. And that's true. But 
then you turn on the news and see something horrible and you say, oh, never mind, the God who could let that happen is an ugly God. I don't believe him. Don't live your life that way, people. God's track record, he kept the promise to Abraham. Maybe just in the very tiniest seed form. One son representing a multitude of nations. But nonetheless, there was a son. We can believe, we can have hope's full assurance, not only because God keeps his promises and has kept his promises, but because he cannot lie. God, it is impossible for him to lie, the writer says. Just as it is physically impossible for you to fly by flapping your arms, it is morally impossible for God to say, I will save you from your sins through my son, and then back out. He can't do it. You know you can't fly by flapping your arms because you've tried. We've all tried. When you were a child, you were like, it's got to be easy. Watch that bird just jump in the air. It's not easy to fly if you have the body of a human being. It's impossible. And it is impossible for God to lie. He always and only tells the truth. And he wants us to know that he tells the truth. He does everything he can to show that he is faithful. God determining to show more abundantly the immutability of his counsel. My plan cannot change. That's what he wanted to show Abraham. That's what he wants to show us. If you wanted to show that your purpose was unchangeable, how would you show that? If you had developed a plan and you said, I want to be locked into this plan, I want to be unable to back out of this plan, you would probably have a public ceremony, you would probably invoke certain legal penalties upon yourself, the forfeiture of all your property, or the loss of this or that thing that is very important to you. If I break my word, I will go to jail. That kind of thing, you would invoke an authority greater than yourself to hold you to your promise. God has no authority greater than himself, and thus he invokes himself. He invokes his own character, that it's impossible for him to lie, and an oath where he swears, I am telling the truth, so help me God. It may seem odd to envision God saying, so help me God, but that's what he did. Calling upon himself as witness and saying, if I break this oath, I will deal with me. I will take it out of my own hide. God subjected himself to the most stable, permanent, unchangeable thing ever. His own word. He promised, blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply you. Why does God want to show us that his plan won't change? Well, the Hebrew writer tells us it's because we need a place to go. We need something trustworthy. We're surrounded by, what, this world where the only constant is change. 
When the most reliable things go away, the biggest businesses fail, the best kept promises are broken. Banks say, your money is safe with us, and then they collapse, right? Or whatever the case may be. Your employer says, oh yeah, you have a pension for the rest of your life. And then they go bankrupt and your pension vanishes. That happens in this world. But that does not happen with God. We need a refuge, the writer says. We have fled for refuge. We need a place to go. We've all heard of refugees. People who leave their home and their life because where their home is is in such a bad place that they have to get out. They leave. And they typically can bring very, very little. The writer describes us as those people. We are refugees. We fled our homeland in search of a better country and the hope of heaven is all we have left. He graphically illustrates this in chapter 11 by talking about these refugees wandering around in sheepskins and goatskins and living in holes and in caves of the earth. Chinese fashion retailer Shine offers thousands of new styles every week. If you get tired of what you were wearing last week, throw it away and buy more. That's their... I bet you, though, I did not check, but I bet they don't offer sheepskins and goatskins. Why not? People who care about their clothing don't wear sheepskins and goatskins. These are not the clothes of people who can take the time to dress well. They're the clothes of those who have nothing, or at least nothing earthly. That's us. We've fled for refuge. Our hope is not in the world, right? It's an act of despair to abandon your home, to abandon your job, to abandon your city, and to leave and say, life is so bad, where? Like Assad's Syria, Bashar Assad's Syria. It's so bad, anywhere would be better. And so I will leave and go somewhere where I know no one, where I don't know the language, where I don't have a job, where I don't have an identity, where I don't have a life, where I don't have a home, and I will live there. That's the status of the refugee. And that's us, refugees from this present evil age. We haven't necessarily forsaken our homes and our clothing. None of you are wearing sheepskins and goatskins, nor am I. But the writer is speaking in terms of leaving all and following Christ. That is, if you're a Christian, you're saying, I'm ready at a moment's notice to literally be a refugee, and I figuratively already am one. I hold this world's goods loosely. Let goods and kindred go. We sing that song because we have fled for refuge. We need something beyond what this world can give. I told you James Bond is not a great theologian, but one of his movie titles is correct. The world is not enough. That's why we're refugees. And we are not very trusting. 
We've been burned too many times. Someone tells you, I will be your savior and give you a home in my house forever. We say, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, I believe that. God tells us that though. So he multiplies his testimonies. He proves his faithfulness. He repeats himself over and over to say, I will keep my promise to you. We doubt God. He says, I will bless you. And we say, "Hmm, I think the world, the flesh, and the devil will bless me more. We don't usually say it in so many words, but we say, oh, that shiny thing. I will live for that. The new boat. The trip to Hawaii. He says, I am all you need. And we say, well, I also need to overeat. I need to overwork. I need to overanalyze. I need to generally overdo it. Because I don't trust that you are all I need. He says, fear not. And we say, clearly you don't see how much there is to fear. He says, don't commit adultery. And we say, Game of Thrones isn't adultery. And on and on it goes. God multiplies these testimonies because we so easily and naturally as fallen creatures doubt Him. I don't believe it, God. I don't believe it's for my good that you say honor father and mother. You haven't met my father and mother. I don't believe it's for my good that you say do not steal. You don't realize how many people have stolen from me. I just need to get my own back. We have rationalizations and excuses about all ten of the commandments because we don't trust. God meets us in our need and our doubtingness and He reaffirms, He swears, He multiplies testimonies. As I said, this was His fourth promise to Abraham. And this time He added a solemn oath to His words. He multiplies His testimonies to encourage our faith and to strengthen our hope. To tell us, you can believe. You can trust that if you have to quit your job in order to worship Me, I will take care of you. You can trust that if you submit to your husband, like I said, I will take care of you. You can trust that if you don't steal, you will still have enough. You can trust that the world, the flesh, and the devil will curse you, and I will bless you. God's promises strengthen our hope. So since the Hebrew writer wants you to give that diligence to have the full assurance of hope, seek out God's promises. Listen to what He says in His Word. Look at His faithfulness to Israel and to Christ and know that that faithfulness has not changed, that He will still be faithful to you. The writer goes on to describe hope. It's like a soul anchor. He says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. The soul is cast down, Psalm 42. The soul falls to the depths. Or, right, if you're bipolar, the soul soars and you're manically happy. The anchor keeps you at a steady spot. Anchor is a heavy weight dropped over the side of a boat and it grabs the seafloor and keeps you in one spot. 
No longer are you just floating in the water. You're tied down to the bottom. And your boat can only go the length of the anchor chain. Both up and down. That's it. The anchor holds you right there. That is what hope does. Hope keeps your soul from being too cast down or being happy in a fake, manic sort of way. Hope keeps our souls from being driven before wind and tide. Hope steadies us so we don't blow away in the storms or get swamped by the heavy waves. Right? The psalmist says, my soul is in despair, and he immediately counters that despair with hope. Hope in God. What's the antidote to despair? It is hope. I will yet praise Him. He is the salvation of my face. Now you might be like Prince Hamlet in despair and say, what to me is the human race, this quintessence of dust? What to me is the beautiful world that God made? A foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. But even as Hamlet says that, he reaffirms that those things are good. Man is a piece of work, noble in action and invention. That the sky is a majestical roof, fretted with golden fire. Hope keeps us, so that even when we feel that everything is terrible, we know that it is not. God will keep His promises. And even if you extend current trends and see that they only go down, it doesn't matter. Your hope is not in current trends. Your hope is in God. This hope is sure. This hope is certain. It won't go bust. It won't fail. It won't go belly up. It won't need a government bailout. Hope does not put us to shame. When you're hoping in the right thing, lots of people fix their hope on fantasies. Oh, my son will return and apologize. He may not. Don't hope for that. Hope in God. Because where does hope belong? Hope is actually in heaven, says the writer. The forerunner has entered into the holy place, the most holy place behind the veil. Hope is in the same place that Jesus is. Jesus has become high priest and he is in the presence of God. Getting back to that topic, hope is where Christ is. Our hearts should be in heaven. That's where our treasure is. Not in Hawaii. Not in a boat. Not in our bank account. Or in our homes. We love and delight in Jesus. We long for the realization of what He has promised us that we will dwell in God's house forever. Hope has entered the presence of God and hope will carry us to the presence of God. Faith takes us to heaven and leads us to heaven and hope does too. So meditate this week on the faithfulness of God as the one who keeps His promises. Think about the size, the scope, the wonder of those promises. Don't let yourself meditate on we're going to have a good meal and then it's going to be the Christmas season and we're going to give and get all kinds of wonderful gifts. 
It's fine to think about those things, but think about them in the context of the greatest gift. You have Jesus. God kept his promises. He sent that seed of Abraham in a manger in Bethlehem. What's better, Thanksgiving dinner or the marriage supper of the Lamb? Let your hope gather strength. Let it become the weightiest thing in your life. The mighty anchor that holds you fast. The wonderful consolation that sits in the heavenly temple right next to Jesus and his Father. Their word to you is a word of promise and salvation. Let's pray. Father, give us this hope. The sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Don't let our souls be in despair. Help us to remember you wherever we are. Jordan's Land, Miser's Hill, Mount Hermon, Campbell County. We have fled for refuge. Help us to find that refuge and to live in hope. We pray in these things in the name of your Son. Amen.